is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Good Saturday morning. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We are live. We are in studio today. Next week we'll be sitting in our car, however, in our parking garage over in Pullman, just FYI. So our mobile studio, football games, you know. Anyway, let's talk about the weekly wrap. Look, October came to an end on Monday. The Dow Jones Industrial Average logged its best monthly performance since 1976 with a gain of 14%. The stock market was due for a period of consolidation after a big run, which picked up steam as the week this week progressed. The major averages clung to a fairly narrow trading range in the first half of the week as market participants played a waiting game ahead of the FOMC policy decision on Wednesday and Fed Chair Powell's subsequent press conference. The big run in October was partially predicated on the notion that the Fed might soften its approach after the November meeting. The following line in the policy directive from Wednesday added fuel to that notion. In determining the pace of future increases in the target range, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation and the economic and financial developments. The market participants quickly adjusted to the reality that the Fed is apt to raise rates higher than expected for longer than expected. Fed Chair Powell said at his press conference, when people hear lags, they think about a pause. It's very premature, in my view, to be thinking about or talking about pausing our rate hike. We have a way to go. We need ongoing rate hikes to get to that level of restrictive. We don't know exactly where that is. Mr. Powell also struck by his resilient, stuck by how resilient the labor market has been, noting that the unemployment rate is still hovering near a 50-year low. And the wage inflation while flattening out is still well above the level that would be consistent over time with the 2% inflation. The October employment report reflected a labor market that isn't slowing enough, isn't showing enough weakness yet to convince the Fed that it can stop raising the target range for the Fed's runs rate. That point notwithstanding, the October employment situation was more consistent with achieving a soft landing for the economy than a hard landing. Other economic data of note this week included the ISM Manufacturing Index for October. That report reflected a moderation in manufacturing activity that borders on contractionary territory, which hasn't been seen since the pandemic-led contractions in April and May of 2020. The ISM Non-Manufacturing Index for October showed that business activity for non-manufacturing sector which comprises the largest swath of the U.S. economic activity, softened in October 
at the same time that price pressures remained elevated. Treasury yields were on the rise in anticipation of Wednesday's FOMC decision, but yields really moved up after that. The two-year Treasury note rose 25 basis points, that would be a quarter of 1% this week, to 4.67%. The 10-year yield rose 15 basis points this week to 4.16%. Other central banks also made headlines this week aside from the Fed. The European Central Bank, President Lagarde, said the recession risk in the eurozone has increased and inflation is too high. The ECB policymaker Nagel said that the ECB has a long way to go on rate hikes and that the central bank should begin reducing its bond portfolio at the start of next year. And the Reserve Bank of Australia raised its cash rate by 25 basis points, again, that's a quarter of a percent, to 2.85% as expected. The Norges Bank raised its key rate by 25 basis points as well to 2.5%, and the Bank of England increased their rate by three-quarters of 1% to 3%. Market participants received earnings reports that over a third of the companies in the S&P 500 this week. Per usual, there were some big winners and big losers, yet macro factors, macro factors tended to overshadow the individual earnings reports. Growth stocks struggled this week, which were affected by rising interest rates, weak guidance in a number of cases, and the shift of the mega-cap darlings. The mega-cap growth ETF, for example, fell 6.8% this week. Apple and Amazon were among the losing standouts for that group. Meanwhile, Chinese stocks were a pocket of strength this week as speculation circulated that China will ultimately relax its zero-COVID policy. J.D. and Alabama were among the biggest winners in Chinese stocks. And energy stocks were another pocket of strength in the market. The S&P 500 energy sector closed with the biggest weekly gain up 2.4% as West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures rose 5.4% to $92.60 a barrel. Only two other sectors out of the 11 total were able to squeeze out a gain on the week. Industrials rose 4 tenths of 1% and materials rose 9 tenths of 1%. And the dollar saw had a whipsaw week. The U.S. dollar index was inching higher all week, taking until taking a sharp turn lower Friday, as other major currencies registered big gains against the greenback. The euro was up 2.1%, and the U.S. dollar index closed the week unchanged. So, as of Friday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now down 10.8% for the year. The NASDAQ is still down 33%. The S&P 500 is still in bear territory, down 20.9%. And Russell's almost there. It's down 19.8% for the year. Taking a quick snapshot, which I do every now and then, looking at the growth versus value, growth of your companies, your large growth companies, your FANG stocks, your Facebooks, your Apples, your Netflixes, your your Amazons, your Googles, your Microsofts, your value stocks, your dividend-based stocks. Well, the most recent results show that value stocks have significantly outperformed growth stocks in the last year. And having said that, the S&P 500 Pure Growth Index has outperformed its counterpart in, in basically four or six periods of time. So if you look at the 15 years, the 10 years, the five years, the three-year period of time, growth stocks outperform value. But in the last year and year-to-date, that has turned around, and dividend stocks are doing better. So if we look at this, over the last 15 years, growth stocks have averaged almost 10.7%, dividends about 8.5%. 10 years, 
the average growth has averaged 13.65 percent versus about 12 percent for value stocks. Five-year average, 9.5% on the growth versus 75 on value. The last three years, about 10.3% on growth versus 9.8.9% on the value. But in the last year, growth is down 24.7. Value stocks as a whole are up 1.5. And year-to-date, growth stocks are down about 25. Value stocks are barely unchanged at down 0.11%. The largest sector weighting in the growth index is information technology, which makes up almost 36% of it. The largest sector in the value index are financials, which make up about 31%. And so basically we've continued to see as this year has gone along that value has been generally been better placed to be than growth. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. We'll be back in a minute. My name is Monica Mahal, and I'm a pediatrician here in Whatcom County. I'm one of over 100 local nurses and doctors voting yes for Whatcom Kids. A child's brain develops most dramatically during the first five years. The Children's Fund on our ballots expands childcare options and supports kids and families of all backgrounds, including our most vulnerable. So join me and vote yes for Prop 5, the Children's Fund. Paid for by Yes for Whatcom Kids, top five donors, Chuck and Health Foundation, Children's Funding Accelerator, Lydia Place, Patty Emhoff, and Imco Construction. Columbia Fire is expanding and hiring. If you're a licensed sprinkler fitter, sales estimator, or project manager, Columbia Fire is offering flexible scheduling on a winning team with competitive pay, medical, dental, and 401k matching. So if you're an experienced sprinkler fitter, sales estimator, or project manager, take your career to the next level and have fun doing it with Columbia Fire. For career opportunities, go to ColumbiaFire.net. That's ColumbiaFire.net. Whatcom County has a bright future with Senator Simon Sepsik. You're here ultimately because of the future. Because each one of us has this, this radical notion, this belief that we as citizens know how to run our lives and spend our money better than a group of politicians and bureaucrats in a far distant capital. It's this radical notion that we in this country have the ability to stay new and to stay fresh, protecting and defending freedom. As John Adams said, however, liberty once lost is forever lost. We've seen how true that is over the past two years as our rights seem to go farther and farther away and our freedoms are eroded from us. But the reason that you've worked so hard and sacrificed so much is because you believe in protecting this, Whatcom County, Washington State, and this country to give it and to give to your children a better life than the one that you inherited. Simon Sepsik. Together, we can build a better future. Visit simonforwa.com. Paid for by Simon for Senate Republican. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you. Saturday morning here on KGMI. Well, we're Asset Advisors. We're located out in Ferndale, out, I guess halfway to Ferndale, out in the Pacific Commerce Center next to Wilson's Furniture, north of the Slater Road, anyway, on your right. And our address is 5060 Pacific Highway Suite, 101 Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. And, of course, you're hearing all these headlines about the Powerball drawing for tonight being the largest ever. 
and expected to be over $1.5, $1.6 billion as there wasn't a winner on Wednesday. And, of course, Americans are flocking out there to buy tickets for that, uh, that, that tick, the drawing for tonight. But let's think about how you would manage that much cash in an extremely unlikely chance. Only one out of $292 million that you're going to win. It's no small task. Inflation, interest rate hikes, and looming recession make it that much harder. But the lucky winner will have to choose. They got a choice. They got 30 annual payments that grow at the rate of 5% each year and are expected to average almost $32 million after taxes per year. Or you could take an immediate cash payout of about $745-$750 million based on current numbers, which will drop to about $470 million after federal taxes. And of course, there's an argument for each strategy. But in the current high inflation environment, most financial advisors are going to suggest take the lump sum. But either way, the hand windfall is going to be heavily taxed. The federal government is going to take 37% because the winner would move, would move into the highest income tax bracket. And state and local taxes vary, with no lottery taxation in some states like California, Florida, and Texas, but then 10.9% in New York, and an additional 3.9% if you live in the city of New York. And then, because uh, you think the bigger question is, do you want to pay all the taxes up front? Well, basically at these rates, and we do expect tax rates to be higher in the future, maybe it's not a bad thing to do. If you happen to win, we'd be glad to manage that money for you. And when we're talking about lottery winners, found an interesting piece here where a lottery winner won a $30 million jackpot that he hid from his wife and his child. Now, this is a little out there a ways, but the man was in southern China, and he was keeping his 219 million yuan, which worked out at about $30 million U.S., Lottery jackpot secret, secret from his wife and his child, saying he was worried that the winnings might make them lazy. The man de- 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 identified only as Mr. Lee went alone to the lottery office in Nanning in the southern region of Zhangzai to claim his prize. And the, according to the news, he wore a bright, bright yellow costume that covered his head in photos showing him accepting the prize. He said, I didn't tell my wife and child for fear that they would be too complacent it would not work hard in the future. He donated 5 million yuan to charity and said he hadn't decided what to do with the rest. He collects about 171.6 million yuan after taxes. The man bought a winning t- a ticket at a shop with some 120,000 people just east of the regional cam- the capital of Nanning. The day after he realized he won, he drove to the bigger city to present the ticket at the lottery headquarters. He says, I only slept in a hotel because I was afraid to go out and lose the lottery ticket. Central China's government runs lotteries to raise money for welfare and sports. Players like to pick their six numbers on red balls and one on the blue ball. He said his winning numbers were 2, 15, 19, 26, 27, 29, and 2. Anyway, don't know if you want to try that tonight, but I thought that was an interesting story. And also, this last week, I was talking to you about the I-bonds uh, rates were going to be going down as of uh, Tuesday, that if you were 
in the market to try to capture that almost 9.8% or whatever the I-bond rate was. Well, that rate is now reset for the next three months at 6.89%. And series, uh, series I savings bonds issued over the next six months, again, 6.89%, down from the record high. The new rate was announced on Tuesday and will apply to bonds purchased between November 1st and April 30th, made up of two components, a fixed rate of four-tenths of 1%, after sitting on inflation in 2020, and a variable rate of four point of 6.48%. And, of course, the desire to lock in the previous 9.62% before the last week's deadline drove a dry, mad scramble for bonds. There were $3 billion that went into them last week, according to the Treasury Department. For the month of October, sales reached almost $7 billion. That includes a billion dollars last Friday alone, comparable to the total amount sold in all of 2021 and roughly the amount sold in a three-year period between 2018 and 2020. I-bonds are designed to protect investors' inflation. become popular this year as returns on both stocks and bonds, of course, have disappointed. The rate changes every six months in the bond purchase date based on prevailing rates. So if you managed to buy in October, you locked in that 9.62% until the end of March. And the rush to buy overwhelmed the clunky Treasury Direct website. Users reporting delays and glitches. Those who couldn't complete the purchase before the land last week can still buy, but they're going to buy at that lower rate. And while we're talking about inflation, saw that we saw a piece out here this week that says that pizza is going to be more appealing this Thanksgiving. That Thanksgiving dinner is going to be more expensive, leaving Americans leak-seeking alternatives. From bird flu reducing the supply of turkeys to California's droughts drinking vegetable yields and labor shortage impacting workers available to process and transport food, prices are up across the board. Turkey around $2 a pound, most parts of the country compared to $1.15 a year ago. The the sides have also seen increases. Potatoes are up like 18%. Canned fruit and vegetables are up 19%. Butter is up over 27%, according to September's inflation data. The survey said that one in five Americans doubted whether they would have enough money to cover the cost of Thanksgiving this year. They said they're cutting back and hosting smaller dinners. They're eliminating one dish to save money, and they're also asking guests to bring their own alcoholic beverages. Gen Z, the gem demographic, feels the most financially constrained is opting for meals of soup, salad, and pizza. They're also more willing to ask friends to pay for their share of the feast. And limited service restaurants where you pay before you eat have become an option for those wanting a catered meal since they've been, they've been slower to raise their prices. In this category, uh, those, they're offering meals to go with roasted turkey, gravy, stuffing, etc. cetera. Uh, in some cases, not a bad deal. And the premium for dining out has never been smaller. Inflation on food away from home category is raising at a slower rate than that for groceries. And basically, for anyone that wants to pamper themselves and forego the hassle of cooking and cleaning up at home, this could be the year that you book that favorite restaurant. Just make sure you do it ahead so that you know that you got a place to go. And also talking about inflation, we're finding that many Americans are also uh, foregoing retirement savings. The rising costs of has forced them to halt, cut back, and dip their retirement savings. Many believe the recession is around the corner. 
2023 current third quarter market perception study found that 62% worried that major recession is near, a concern that's consistently been higher throughout this year compared to last year. The fear noted that world tension, 78%, midterm elections that cause more market volatility. Most respondents, in this case 71%, said they're keeping some money out of the market to protect from loss. A number have been steadily increasing over the last year, the study found. It also found that the number of Americans who are ready to invest increased from 17% last quarter to 26% third quarter. That means they're trying to take advantage of the drop in the market. But millennials, it said, are more likely to feel comfortable with current market conditions and are ready to invest over 40% of millennials, about 26% of Gen Xers, and about 15% of baby boomers. And 67% of the respondents said they're nervous about investing, but they also fear of missing out on the recovery. And again, it was millennials, 76%, who were more in agreement with this sentiment than Gen Xers than boomers. And four in five respondents are anxious about the negative impact of rising inflation will continue to have on their purchasing power. The study also knows that four in 10, or 43%, have had to dip into their retirement savings because of rising inflation. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Going to talk a little bit about what's happening in the energy area. Thanks for being with us. My name is Marcus Virta, and I manage a small business here in Whatcom County called Western Solar. Every day I see firsthand the impact good jobs have on the lives of people. Sharon Shoemake is an economist and a mom who brings practical, real-life experience to the state Senate. I became an economist to help people. Now I'm running for state Senate to fix our broken housing market, create jobs, lower taxes on working people, and build an economy that works for everyone. Paid for by People for Sharon, Democrat. DeWard and Bodie's Black Friday Early Access Sale is underway and you don't want to miss it. Black Friday pricing is available now on appliances, barbecues, mattresses, and more at all three DeWard and Bodie locations in Bellingham and Burlington. This is your chance to score the lowest prices of the year on refrigerators, dishwashers, laundry sets, ovens, cooktops, and more. Bundle and save on kitchen appliance packages with huge cashback rebates from your favorite brands like Whirlpool, LG, KitchenAid, GE, Bosch, and more in stock and on sale. Upgrade your mattress this weekend with Black Friday savings on Tempur-Pedic, Sealy, and Stearns and & Foster. This weekend, keep your cash and pay no money down and no interest for two full years on qualifying orders. Plus, shop in confidence with DeWard & Bodie's 30-day local price match guarantee on select in-stock items and get fast professional delivery on qualifying orders. Shop the biggest sale of the season during Black Friday early access at DeWard & Bodie right now in Bellingham and Burlington. Financing OAC offer qualifications State Representative Alicia Rule doesn't believe that one party or the other has all the answers. She knows that we need to work together to move our community forward. Alicia's worked hard to create opportunity for people who didn't go to college by expanding career and technical education in high schools. She's also working to restart Intelco. When it reopens, that means 700 union jobs back in Ferndale. Alicia Rule is the only pro-choice candidate in the race. She's endorsed by Planned Parenthood and Pro-Choice Washington. Alicia Rule has earned the support of law enforcement. She's earned the trust of the Fraternal Order of Police and the Bellingham-Wacom County Firefighters. Retired Bellingham Police Chief Flo Simon said, Alicia Rule said no to defund the police, increased pay for the first responders, and fought to criminalize non-medical use of fentanyl. She's been a fantastic state representative. I'm State Representative Alicia Rule. 
I hope that I can earn your vote. Paid for by Visha Rule Democrat. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today at westmechanical.net to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Cooling and Heating. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. President Biden is campaigning on behalf of Democrats ahead of Tuesday's midterm elections. In Joliet, Illinois today, he spoke about his Inflation Reduction Act, which, among other things, allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices. For years, Big Pharma has blocked us from being able to negotiate that. They were the only exception out there, but not this year. We finally beat Big Pharma. Finally, finally, finally. Severe storms and multiple tornadoes blew across the southwest last night. Jennifer Draper captured what appeared to be a twister moving by her home in Powderly, Texas. Oh, man, we just lost electricity. Severe weather also hit Oklahoma and Arkansas. Now, time for some good news. The Powerball drawing is tonight. Real quick pick of each one. Powerball. The jackpot is a mirror. $1.6 billion. CBS News Brief. I'm Linda Kenyon. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wolf Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. We are live. We are in studio. Before the break, I mentioned I was going to spend a little time talking about energy. And... Um, I'm going to take some material from a newsletter that I've read now for oh, at least 15 years, maybe longer, every Saturday morning. It, uh, it's actually free. Um, you can actually go online and subscribe to it yourself. Uh, it's titled Thoughts from the Frontline. Thoughts from the Frontline. And it's written by an economist, an investment advisor, a lot of different titles, I guess, by the name of John Malden, M-A-U-L-D-I-N. That's M-A-U-L-D-I-N. And you can go online and you can subscribe. It's free. I've uh, read this newsletter. I get it every Saturday morning. I actually forward it to about five different people. So um, got a couple, couple people have asked me for it over the years, and I've forwarded it to them. But I've gone to a number of his conferences over the years, and I can't tell you that I subscribe to everything that I read in John's newsletters, but it's one of those things that they're usually anywhere from 8 to 12 to 15 pages long. And it's one of those things that I read because I'm always looking for thoughts and ideas and maybe information. And maybe in a lot of cases, he tends to be a little bearish at times, but I'm always looking for red flags, things that he might mention that maybe are going to pop up later. And uh, he basically grew up in, in the oil patch about 60, 70 miles north, northwest of Fort Worth in a town by the name of Bridgeport. And as I said, he comes up with this news, weekly newsletter. Every week he covers a cross-section of economic, global economics uh, news. And I'm just going to take a few pieces out of this one. This one was a total somewhere in the neighborhood of... Uh, well, over 15, 16 pages long. It was a little longer than normal. So 
I went through and highlighted a few things, though, and he talks about U.S. primary energy consumption by energy source. Now, this is for the year 2021. And by source for 2021, 36% of our energy in this country came from petroleum. Uh, 8% came from nuclear power. 11% came from coal. And 32% came from natural gas. So petroleum and natural gas made up a total of 68% of the energy production in the United States. 12% came from renewable energy. Rather interesting, you break down that 12% and you find that 2% came from geothermal, 12% from solar, 19% from hydroelectric, 27% from wind, 4% from biomass, uh, waste, uh, 19% from biofuels, total of 40% from biomass, actually, uh, but 4% from biomass waste, 19% from biofuels, and 17% actually came from wood. And that the world crude oil production per capita has basically been flat for the last 30 years. As I continued on through this newsletter, I read a number of different things that on the average, Production in working oil fields declines about 6% a year. And so in two years, that's almost the total production of Russia. So in other words, the decline that we're seeing every year out of an oil field is about 6% a year, about 12%. So the rest of the world has to run very fast just to stay in place in order to replace what Russia is doing every two years. Kind of an interesting statistics. That means Russia is producing about 12% of the world total but with a 6% decline in production every year, you have that has to be replaced about every two years. So also he went over here, another statement, he said, so that they're seeing more drilling, but not on the previous scale. The U.S. exploration of production, or EMP sector, is increasing its capital spending in this year for 2025 too, but that's for the first time in four years. Canada is actually set to remain near multi-decade lows, and the, the expenditures or capital expenditures in the oil patch are less than half of what they were in the peak, and that the global capital expenditures has collapsed about 60% from its peak. So while we're seeing an increase in production and an increase in, in, in expenses this year, we are still about 60% below what was being spent at its peak. And the biggest reason for that, of course, is the oil companies and, and those that have those properties are not sure that they can drill that hole. And number one, that they're going to be allowed to sell it. And number two, there's concerns about uh, if they do, and you hear the, the press secretary for the president sitting there and saying there's 9,000 oil leases that are available. But what they're not saying is you can drill those holes, but they may not let you build the pipeline and the infrastructure that you need in order to move it. Another point in here, peak oil or cheap oil. If you look at just proven reserves, the oil world runs out of gas in about 50 years. And of course, if we will find more, and so the figure on how to figure out how to recover oil and gas from old fields, we're also not going to run out of oil and gas for a long time, but new oil is going to mean higher costs and thus prices. Over time, they'll make renewables relatively cheaper but the operative word on this one is over time. Again, I'm taking these out of a 16-page newsletter, some comments from John Malden, M-A-U-L-D-I-N. 
And again, the newsletter is Thoughts from the Fed, the Frontline. It is free. You can go online. It comes out every Saturday morning. A lot of good information in here. But if I continue down here, he said the world has proven gas reserves equivalent to 52.3 times its annual consumption. Now, that's proven reserves. This means we have about 52 years of oil and gas left at current consumption levels, excluding unproven reserves. Um, Also, he said over here that today the world has over 1.45 billion cars and trucks. North America comes out on top with about 710 vehicles per 1,000 people, or 0.71 vehicles per capita. In other words, 0.71 people own a vehicle. In Europe, that number is 0.52. In South America, it's 0.22. In the Middle East, it's 0.18 people. Asia and Pacific, about 0.14. Africa, 0.05. And Antarctica is 0.05. But so does everyone that's ever traveled really think that Africa or Asia, the Middle East, and South America are satisfied with their current situation? Europe has literally 10 times the number of cars per capita, as does Africa. He also went on here and he noted that even if half of these cars become electric, plus solar and wind and other renewables infrastructure, We simply don't have enough metals needed. And I thought this was a really interesting part of this newsletter. But he did point out that energy has reduced poverty. Since 1990, 1.1 billion have escaped extreme poverty, with more than 140 million entering the burgeoning middle class every year. And history suggests that as people find more money in their pockets, they're also going to spend it much of it directly or indirectly, on energy. So let's go down here and talk a little bit about the uh, lack of uh, natural resources that they're talking about, and especially those things that they need to go out there and the metals that are currently needed. Um, The world must cut its emissions by 43% by 2030 in order to meet Paris goals. Well, Uh, That's rather interesting because right now it's set to increase about 10.6%. And the reality is going to be a renewables world. Then if you look at electric vehicles and batteries, it's not just feasible. We literally don't have enough resources. So you look at how much of these various metals are needed to produce an electric vehicle compared to conventional cars. Rather interesting, these metals include copper, lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, graphite, zinc, rare earth metals, and others. And if you break this down in an average electric car, the number of kilograms per vehicle of these metals in an electric car is about 205 kilograms per vehicle. Yet in a conventional car, it's around 35 kilograms. So the amount of metals that are used in an electric car is like seven times what it takes to build a conventional car. Rather interesting statistic. Also, minerals used in clean energy technologies compared to other power generation sources, and again, this is kilograms per, per milliwatt. Offshore wind takes over 15,000 kilograms of different sources of metals. Again, this is copper, nickel, manganese, cobalt, chromium, uh, molybdenum, zinc, 
rare earths, silicone, and other minerals takes over 15,000 different kilograms for offshore wind. Onshore wind is around a little over 10,000. Solar uh, uh, panels take somewhere around, right, just short of 7,000 different kilograms per milliwatt. Uh, Nuclear is a little over 5,000 kilograms per milliwatt. Coal is about 2,500, and natural gas takes right down around 12, about 1,250 kilograms per milliwatt. So naturally, natural gas is the cheapest source to produce that electricity. Anyway, I found all this rather interesting to kind of go through. And again, you can find that the, find this whole report on Thoughts from the Frontline by John Malden, M-A-U-L-D-I-N. Uh, he... Um, I, I got his newsletter this morning. I haven't had a chance to read it. This was last week's newsletter. He's going to continue to talk about energy here in the next couple, three or four newsletters. So I thought I would share that with you. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We'll be back after a quick moment here. Your home is your refuge, your safe haven. You want it to be comfortable and warm when it's cold outside. You probably haven't used your furnace for a few months, so now is the time to give Smith Mechanical a call and schedule an annual service on your furnace. There's enough worry and stress in the world. We don't need to be stuck with a cold house. Smith Mechanical has been helping their customers save time and money for over 25 years. Find them today at smithmechanical.com. Are you a business owner or manager who spends his day trying to maintain business, supervising employees, solving problems, and of course, meetings? The last thing you need is having your heating system go out. Give Smith Mechanical a call today to service your furnace before the weather turns cold. Their experts are prepared to work quickly and efficiently, taking one burden off your hands. They've been helping business save time and money for over 25 years. Find them today at smithmechanical.com. Hi, I'm Dan Johnson running for state representative. With increased crime, the cost of living, and students falling behind, our state is heading in the wrong direction. This November, you decide where we go from here. As your next state representative, I will fix these issues. Instead of defunding police and releasing dangerous criminals from prison, I will support law enforcement and give them back the tools they need to keep dangerous criminals off the street. Rather than add more taxes that increase the cost of living, I'll vote to cut property taxes, sales tax, and the gas tax. If you hear this and think, I could sure use a break right now, I'm right there with you because you won't get this from my opponent. My opponent works directly for Governor Jay Inslee. We can't afford another two years of more anti-police laws, higher gas taxes, and more fees that add to the cost of living. If you want something different out of Olympia, you need someone who will vote differently in Olympia. I'm Dan Johnson, and I would be honored to be your next state representative. Paid for by Vote Dan Johnson. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you here on KGMI. Got questions for us? You can give us a call, 360-733-1200. Again, that information I just shared on energy came from the newsletter free every Saturday morning called Thoughts from the Frontline. And it's written by John Malden, M-A-U-L-D-I-N. Going to continue on. The question comes up all the time about the markets in October, market lows, and whether or not that's the end of 
the bear market that we've been going through. And, you know, basically October did start out strong, and then it slid to new lows, but then it came back towards the month's end. And so did October mark the bottom of the end of the bear market, or was this a rally that fails as the bear market continues? Well, you know, the honest answer is we don't know. But Yahoo Finance recently noted that October market lows did historically mark the end of bear markets more often than not. And they actually went back through a whole series of different um, markets. And the Stock Traders Almanac, uh, Almanac noted that not all indices have bottomed the same day for all bear markets, but the lion's share or bear share, they should say basically bottomed in October, that October market lows have also occurred regularly before a midterm election such as this year. And Deutsche Bank recently observed that the S&P 500 has risen in the year every single one of the 19 midterm elections since World War II, with not a single instance seeing a negative return. So midterm elections, every midterm election since 1950s have basically been positive a year later. And there's uh, some historical precedent that's going to suggest that October market lows may be in. It's crucial to remember there's no sure things, but history's a guide. It's it's not a gospel, according to Sam Stovall. And, of course, the lows are not likely in. After 10 months of brutal grind lower in the markets, it's no wonder why investors are looking for any sign of selling may be over. But basically, we see that bull markets are more fun than bear markets. There's little doubt as to the veracity of that statement. However, while we can be certain, we hope that October market lows mark the bottom. There are reasons to expect that's not the case, at least not yet. With the mainstream media continues to define the current decline as a bear market, it remains correction within the bullish trend. Several reasons for the statement will determine whether the October market lows were just that. Most notably, these factors, including uh, and are currently missing, that coincide with each of the previous bear markets. One, we have not seen surging unemployment. We have not seen a recession. We have not seen bankruptcies. We haven't seen defaults. We haven't seen the Fed start cutting rates yet. We haven't seen falling two-year or 10-year treasury yields. And there's also an, an, an uninversion of the yield curve. And we're also seeing spiking credit spreads. So the Bank of America recently published a checklist of signposts that previously signaled bear market lows. Currently, only two of those signposts are registered. For example, Fed, Fed, is, is, uh, Fed curing rates or lowering them is one of them. Unemployment rates rise. We haven't seen that. More bear markets than bulls or more bears than bulls. Equity risk premium increases by at least 75 basis points versus 12 months lows. We see a 50 basis point. That Again, that'd be a half percent decline in the two-year yield. We have not seen the interest rates go down. We've seen sell-side indicators and buy-sell indicators. Uh, yield curve uh, steepens. The uh, About 5% of bear market rallies uh, prior three months has not has to happen. Uh, rule of 20, and also the PMI improves. So right now, we're only seeing two of those areas that have been checked that have happened more bears than bulls right now. And the second one being that uh, 5% bear market rallies. So 
We are seeing that rally, but as we move into 23, the markets are going to have much to contend with. Valuations are still elevated by many measures. Earnings are weakening. Profit margins are under pressure from inflation. There's a repricing risk of equities remain. So it does tell us we need to be cautious, but we also need to be a little encouraged that maybe we have seen the bottom in this. And frankly, what we may see happen is it'll go up and down and sideways rather than up or down. Okay, I talked about energy here a minute ago, and I also saw a report come out here that basically said that the Biden administration knows its policies are going to increase energy costs for Americans. And they said Americans, of course, know what's happening with energy prices. They've raised costs throughout the economy. It's also obvious that the administration knows it's blocking solutions that could uh, decrease those costs. Um, while they won't admit it, uh, it could be found buried. There's a 500-page report by the President's Department of Interior that's uh, basically out of sight of most Americans but uh, maybe demands some answers. The Interior Department recently closed its comment period for its 23 to 28 National Outer uh, National Outer Continental Shelf Oil and Gas Leasing program, Proposed Program. The lease plan should have been done and agreed upon back in June uh, when the fi- previous five-year expired. Now we're five months later, and we only have a draft. And the administration is basically required by statute to produce the plan, which stipulates the location and maximum number of offshore lease sales that the government will hold. Roughly 15% of U.S. oil production comes from offshore and about 2% of natural gas. And currently, as the plan is, there is it's no surprise. Basically, they're slow-walking it. The Interior Department's 2021 report and Federal Oil and Gas Lease Program made it clear it has no interest in seeing oil and natural gas produced offshore or on it, for that matter. The report called for fewer leases, higher royalty rates, and more burdensome bidding process to screen buyers. Basically, federal court and legislation from Congress has forced the Interior Department to hold at least one offshore and a gas lease sale in the last two years. But until the Biden administration uh, it took told, there was at least one short offshore lease every year since 1959. Back in the early days, it was offshore energy production. And so despite these energy co- rising costs, the administration doesn't uh, is refusing to rethink its agenda. This year's leasing pro- proposed program puts forward a motion never before seriously contemplated, and that's basically an offshore oil and lease plan with zero lease sales. So not doing much to, uh, to do there. It's buried in the interior plans, 500-page analysis. The plan is a clear admission that they know that this will prolong the energy crisis. The department acknowledges that allowing offshore lease sales they're going to reduce the cost of oil and natural gas for Americans, um, reduce the cost of lease wood, writing new offshore, uh, offshore continental oil and natural gas production, lowers the price consumers pay and producers receive. So anyway, another one of those things talking about what's going on with oil and gas. And, you know, your ballots are due by Tuesday. And if you haven't voted yet, I want to give you something else to think about. And that is back in the FDR's New Deal and the Biden's tax and spend policies basically have not done a very good job, basically been an economic wrecking ball. The economic gaslighting coming out of Washington is astounding, even by D.C. standards. Former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe recently raised the Biden administration 
praised it for its handling of the economy, ignoring failures on inflation, spending, and energy taxes. He compared fellow President Biden to the failed America plan to the former President Roosevelt's New Deal. The unprecedented interventions in the New Deal included wage and price controls, so-called job programs, tripling of taxes to fund bloated government budgets. Far from ending the Great Depression, the New Deal prolonged it and created several bouts of inflation in the 30s. McAuliffe's comparison to Biden to FDR, however, is right, but for the wrong reasons. Both presidents initiated massive interventions in the economy. Neither economic outcome, neither improved economic outcomes. Far from an accomplishment, handling the economy like FDR is basically a sign of failure. The numbers prove Biden's policies have made people's lives and livelihoods worse. You got massive deficits. You got funded by the Federal Reserve, a cost skyrocketing inflation. Who took uh, the inflation when Biden came in? It was 1.4 percent. Real wages were rising. In 18 months, we've managed to push inflation over 9 percent. Prices that were rising nearly as fast in a single month as they did during the entire year before Biden took office. Prices that businesses pay have risen faster than prices for consumers. The wholesale inflation hit 13 month, 13 new record highs, uh, and have stuck in double digits for more than a third of the Biden presidency. Inflation has not gotten better, but far worse. It has not been this bad in over 40 years. And the idea that the agenda somehow saved a stalled economy is fallacious. The Biden inherited an economy growing at a $1.5 trillion annualized rate. In only a year, the administration's policy has caused the economy to shrink, contracting for the first six months of this year. And the slowdown has not limited economic growth. The labor market has, was in robust recovery when he took office. Shortly thereafter, the American Rescue Plan was rammed through Congress. Job growth slowed dramatically in the wake of that. Excess spending, with average monthly job gains being cut in half, and the recovery under President Trump added more jobs in less time than Biden. And the nationwide impacts of the Biden economic agenda have clearly been negative. The individual impacts have been devastating for the average American. The average worker has seen prices go up much faster than wages, and has been, that have been equivalent of five and a half percent of pay since Biden took office. So you're seeing nine, ten percent increase with a five percent average increase in pay. Doesn't sound like much, but it adds up to per year. The average loss income is running about three thousand dollars. So those with savings instead of debt have gotten crushed under the weight of the policies. The average four hundred one k plan has lost about thirty four thousand dollars, or about twenty five percent. You keep going on this. Bell's telling me we need to go. Anyway, Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. Thanks for listening. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And if you have questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a great week. Again, Thoughts from the Frontline by John Malden, M-A-U-L-D-I-N. Thank you for listening.